I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. Leviticus, chapter 25, is where I'd like to uh, direct your attention today as we walk slowly through this book. Uh, Leviticus is the third book in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Bible, and you'll find it somewhere around page 100 or so in your uh, Bible. Uh, Leviticus, chapter 25. We're going to be there together in just a few moments. Uh, you don't want to hear this from me, I'm sure, but our 2014 elections are coming. And the topic that you're going to hear over and over again, you already have, you'll hear it more and more, is the issue of income inequality. You heard that phrase? Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of the war on poverty. LBJ declared a war on uh, poverty 50 years ago in his State of the Union address, and many people argue that the conditions of the poor in uh, our country have not improved in that time. You will hear income equality, inequality as the reason why we should raise the minimum wage, and it will be used to uh, justify tax increases. It will be the reason why we need to improve our schools and shore up health care and, and increase unemployment benefits. Uh, this has been an issue we've been hearing about increasingly. In fact, putting this issue onto the front pages was one of the main successes of the Occupy movement. What? We are the 99%, and income is not equal. Uh, as part of this discussion, some evangelical leaders and some media outlets actually have, uh, like Forbes, Reuters, uh, the Huffington Post, have said that a key solution, a key part of the solution to the problems that we're having in our economy actually can be found here in Leviticus chapter 25 where the Bible talks about Jubilee. That's the only time uh, Forbes has ever done any articles from the book of Leviticus, I assure you. Now in a common reading of this text that we're going to look at this morning, every 50 years the ancient Israelites were to mark what was called the year of Jubilee. And during the year of Jubilee, by God's decree, all debts are to be forgiven, all prosperity was to be shared, and economic justice was to be imposed on the people. That is a common reading of the text. And many people here see a model. This is how we can fix the challenges that we face because of crushing government and, and personal debt. Leviticus 25 is the only passage in the Pentateuch that talks about land ownership and laws related to land ownership. Uh, we're going to spend two weeks going through this passage, and I want to talk about some of the issues that we are, are facing. And it's often the case when we open the Bible, we find that it challenges us. Uh, it actually challenges thinking on both sides of the aisle, the right and the left. As is also true, one of the things that we need to figure out when we're reading the book of Leviticus is we need to distinguish between uh, one of three, or answer rather, we need to answer three uh, very important questions for any passage that we're looking at. Here's, here's the first one. What statutes here that we're reading are unique to God's covenant with Israel? What are the unique things that uniquely apply to this one nation that God had a special covenant with? Um, you'll remember here, this is the worship manual for God's covenant people. That's what Leviticus is. He has rescued them from Egypt, and now outside of the borders of Egypt, on top of Mount Sinai, God is giving them, He has given through Moses to them, the Ten Commandments, and He's also given them this law, these 
commandments, and it's, it's a worship manual. It's also, in some senses, their, their constitution. It gives laws for this nation. And there are parts of it here that are unique because of their role, and they only apply directly to the ancient Israelites living in the land under this covenant. That's the first important issue to keep in mind. The second thing we want to ask, though, is uh, what principles here are embedded that are transnational and transcultural? Nations have things in common with one another. Uh, uh, Our nation is significantly different than the ancient uh, nation of Israel. But because we're both nations, we're both governmental entities, there are commonalities. There are uh, transferable things. We talked about one of those uh, universal transnational uh, principles um, a few weeks ago in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. That really can't be encoded into law but that's a transnational, transcultural principle the Bible sets down. Another one we talked about just last week was the issue of capital punishment. Because human beings are made in God's image, God says that if you take someone's life, you forfeit your own. That's a transnational, transcultural principle. You may object. I, I've seen research, I've read things from people who object to the death penalty because in our culture it, it seems impossible to, um, um, to enforce it, to use it in a way that's ethnically and uh, class, economically uh, fair. You may object to the death penalty for those reasons. You may not object to the death penalty, at least using the Bible, uh, because the Bible says it's immoral, because it, it does not. Now, the third lens, the third question that we have to ask about this passage is, what values does God want to weave into our lives? In other words, what are the values here that are in this passage that are a part of God's word for all of people, all God's people? Um, I have a little book on my shelf. It's great to read in February. It's uh, edited by Michael Haken. It's called The Christian Lover. It's a little tiny book. And in it, he collects and edits some great love letters that famous Christians in the past have written to their spouses or their fiancés, uh, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, things like that. Um, the letters, none of these letters are written to me. There's no letter in there that's addressed to me, and I didn't write them either. But because of our common faith, I benefit from reading those letters and, and see how Jesus Christ, what difference did these people's faith make in their marriage, and then what difference should it make in my marriage? Um, This is God's law for Israel, but because the God who wrote it is the same, we benefit from reading it. What values are embedded here uh, that God wants to weave into our lives? Now, to proceed, what I want to do is I first want to give you an overview of Leviticus chapter 25. I want to walk through this chapter briefly and tell you what's here. And then we're going to spend some time looking at the opening paragraph where um, uh, it, it shows us in these first seven verses how to think, uh, where we should start, and how we think about the economic challenges that we face. It's not going to surprise you. Where does the Bible want us to start when it wants to talk to us about broad, huge issues? Where does the Bible always start? Right here. Uh, Your heart. I don't have the power to set interest rates. I can't print money legally. Um, I, I I can't pass any laws. But if, if I start here, I'm heading in the right direction. 
Now, first an overview here. This chapter is a main source of information for what's called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, once in a lifetime for an average Israelite farmer, uh, every 50 years, all land was to return to its original owners, all slaves were set free, and all indebtedness is ended. Now, I did not say indebtedness uh, debts are canceled. I said indebtedness comes to an end, and there's a difference, an important difference. We're actually going to talk about that uh, next week. Now, the purpose of the year of Jubilee is to ensure that the nation of Israel did not become a feudal society. F-E-U-D-A-L, not futile, uh, but feudal. Do you remember learning about the feudal system in high school? Uh, Feudalism was the main economic system of Europe during the Middle Ages. And in feudalism, the wealth, the land, the power, it was held by just a few people while everybody else was reduced basically to slavery or serfdom. Some people say that's what's uh, happening in our own economy, but we're going to seek next week in particular to talk about how the year of Jubilee did that. How did it keep the nation of Israel, from sinking into feudalism. Now, before going into particulars, though, Leviticus here describes another practice that is the basis or that sets you up for the year of Jubilee, and it's the practice called the Sabbath year. Uh, It's described in the first seven verses, and I want to read that right now. Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. Follow along in your Bible as I read this passage here. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields by itself, we'll talk about that, during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Now, this is not a difficult passage to understand. It's not difficult to conceive. Work for six years, sow, prune, harvest, and then in the seventh year, stop. The land was to have a seventh-year rest. The people were to rest every seventh day of every week on the Sabbath. This was a Sabbath year for the land. And the people were to survive in part by what uh, happened to grow in the fields. Now, uh, this is before industrialization. This was before modern farming equipment. This is before tractors were equipped with GPS units and before there were precision harvesting machines. Um, so there would certainly be some crops in this uh, economy left in the ground and the seeds would be there and the seeds would go into the ground and, and the, 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 the fields would would have grain in them, and the vineyards certainly would produce grapes, and the olive trees would produce olives. That's what they were to eat. They weren't to cultivate intentionally the land, but whatever the land happened to produce in that seventh year, that was what they could eat. In fact, it was for everybody. It's for you, your uh, family, your servants, foreigners, employees, even your animals. 
could go into the field and get what they wanted. Now, as best we can tell in the Bible, the Israelites never did this. It's part of the law that they did not obey. There's no evidence that they did. And in fact, um, when they went into exile, several hundred years after this is written, when they went into exile, the prophets said, now at last the land is going to get the rest that it should have, that you did not give it all those years that you were there. Now, after the exile, and before the, the New Testament was written, Uh, The Israelites actually observed this law very carefully. We have records that indicate that the Romans did not collect taxes during the Sabbath year in in recognition of the fact that the farmers would not be producing enough money to pay their taxes. Over time, actually, the the idea became prominent in uh, Jewish thinking that the Messiah was going to come during a Sabbath year. It was actually during a Sabbath year that John the Baptist started proclaiming Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. It was a Sabbath year. The the original recipients didn't follow this law to their loss because God wanted to teach them some crucial lessons. He wanted them to teach them particular ways to think about what they owned. And I want to share two of them with you this morning, briefly this morning. First of all, here, this passage shows us that we are stewards of God's blessings. We're stewards of of God's blessings. I know, I know some of you have heard this before, uh, but the temptation to think otherwise is so strong, it's so prevalent, it bears repeating. This is a section of Scripture that tells us what to do with the talents and the skills and the possessions and the positions that you have. What are they supposed to do? What are they for? Why did God give you your house? Uh, why do you have your car? Why are you able to throw a baseball the way that you can throw a baseball? What are those things for? Uh, There's a very common answer to that question. Everything I have is for my self-betterment. It's for my comfort. Because God wants to make me happy and and satisfied and uh, luxuriate in the things that I have. It's a common answer. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Bob McDonald, the former governor of Virginia, was indicted. He was indicted for corruption, for taking bribes, he and his wife. Not bribes so much as illegally accepting gifts um, with the hope that, they would, that those gifts would be, um, the, the giver would receive some political favor. Um, one of the donors paid for the McDonald's daughter's wedding. And one day, Mrs. McDonald uh, observed a watch on the, the arm of one of her husband's great donors and said, boy, my husband would sure like a Rolex like that. I would too, come to think of it. He used, apparently they used their, their political office and the power that comes from being governor in order to make himself a wealthier man. We all face a temptation to use what we have for our own sake. Now, the first few verses of chapter 25 here tie together two very prominent themes in the Hebrew Scriptures. They are the land and the Sabbath. The land and the Sabbath. These are regulations about land, but not just any land. This is the promised land. This is the land that God has given to Israel. He promised it to their forefather Abraham. Now they're going to move in it, into it, and they're going to enjoy it. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham three things. I'll give you descendants, 
I will give you land and I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. This is God's land that he has given them. It was a gift. The land was a sign to them of God's goodness, that he's fulfilling his promises, that he's faithful to us. And the Sabbath was a sign of the enjoyment of that blessing. Sabbath was a 24-hour period uh, uh, in the week in which the, the Israelites were supposed to rest and they were supposed to do two things. They were supposed to reflect and anticipate. That's what Sabbath is for. It's for reflection and anticipation. They were to reflect on their past. They had been slaves in Egypt. Slaves don't rest. That's not what a slave does. But God has rescued them from slavery and now they're free and he has provided for them some rest. And the anticipation comes, that's the reflection, they think about that. The anticipation, looking to the forward, they anticipate the day when God is going to fulfill all of his promises and everything will be made new. Someday all of life will be as satisfying as sitting on your porch on Saturday evening in July with a tall glass of lemonade and your lawn is freshly mowed and your laundry is folded and your house is clean and your children are playing peacefully in your lawn with one another and the dog. It will be just all of life is going to feel that way. Reflection, anticipation. Uh, This morning we're going to mark the Lord's death through communion in a few minutes. This is a time where we reflect and anticipate too. We live in between the time that Christ came for the first time and we anticipate the fact that he's going to come again. Christ has come once and he set us free from slavery, didn't he? We who were uh, abuse our power and our possessions and our positions, um, he came and he bore God's wrath against sin, uh, against our sin. And we're going to partake of these elements in faith. We're trusting in what Christ has done on the cross for our forgiveness and for life. And we're anticipating the day that Christ is going to come back. Remember what Paul says, I, I say it every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We reflect we anticipate. That, that's what Sabbath is for. But according to verse 4 here, this Sabbath year in particular was a Sabbath to the Lord. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a, Sabbath of, a, day, a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. It is for Him. It is unto Him. It is before Him. What the people have and what they enjoy is a blessing of the Lord as a result of His kindness. And because of His kindness, He has the right, because they come from Him, His generosity, He has the right to tell them how to use their resources. This is not an example of the book of Leviticus saying to the God's people, you didn't build that. That's not what this passage is saying. Rather, what this passage is saying is, recognize where your possessions, where your skills, where your opportunities come from. Put them in proper perspective. And we recognize that God does not give us the opportunities and the successes we have for our own comfort or the expansion of our own reputation or the growth of our own brand. They are to be used, stewarded, cared for to Him, unto Him, before Him. 
God says, this land is yours, and I'm telling you, I'm guiding you and how best to use it. Trust in my wisdom, trust in my goodness, uh, and, and follow me. It's a complete reorientation. When you stop working that field that you have worked so hard to cultivate, when you stop caring for those vineyards that you've grown so long and you do it at God's command, oh, it's the reminder. Where did you get the vineyard? Where did you get the field? Where did you get those skills? God provided them for you. And, and one of the ways that you honor him is by following what he says to do with them. This is a broad way of thinking about things. This is a big idea about where you place yourself in the world that God has made. And it's not one that we are inclined to embrace. Remember what the Lord said? Uh, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord their power over them. This is what we are naturally inclined to do with position, with power, with possessions, with opportunities. Lord it over other people. Not so with you, the Lord said. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. I, this is a broad principle, but I, I think let's make this specific here for just a moment here. Pick a room in your house. Sometime this week, pick a room in your house. Maybe it'll be your favorite room, and I want you to walk into that room and think about everything that is there. The things hanging on the wall, the things... Uh, the furniture that you have in it, and ask yourself, what does it mean for me to use these things to the Lord? Now, this could become burdensome. Many, many times you, you will see something in your house, you'll pick it up, and you'll say, this is a, a reason for me to give thanks to God. I am thankful for this chair. It's comfortable. I love it. God has been kind to me in giving me this chair. Sometimes, though, I wonder, though, if you'll see things that, that God has given you in part for sharing. Do you know how you can tell if you own your possessions or that your possessions own you? You, you can tell by your willingness to share with others. So the New Testament places such a high priority on hospitality. How do you know that you, your things aren't for solely, or you're, how do you know that you're not living as if your things are solely for you? Because you share them with other people. One way uh, we, we read this passage, where do we start when we think about these big economic issues? Right here, we are stewards of God's blessings. Here's secondly, though. This passage teaches us that we are all equally dependent on God's grace. We are equally dependent on God's grace. I'm interested here in what verses 6 and 7 say about how the Israelites were supposed to use their fields during the Sabbath year. I think there will be some significant temptations here. Wouldn't there be temptations? I'll call one the get-off-my-lawn temptation. It's the Sabbath year and your neighbors are coming over to your field, your vineyard, your olives. Get off my lawn! I know that it's the Sabbath year, but go Sabbath year somewhere else. Then... Um, the second temptation maybe would be that let's get it while we can temptation. <laughs> Have you seen their vineyards? They're beautiful. We've got to get those grapes before our neighbors do. Right? Can you see this temptation to, to uh, um, hold and hoard? Huh. But the land is, is God's gift. And in a sense, God is the farmer who provides the crops. 
No one has cultivated these crops, and what grows, grows because of God's pleasure. And what he provides is free and open to all. Everyone in the land is dependent on God's kindness and his provision. I'm sure that people wondered. Don't you imagine at the end of the six-year harvest, they thought to themselves, this has got to last two harvests. We've got to eat this until, because we won't be able to eat it in the seventh-year harvest, and so we'll have a whole other year of cultivating before the eighth-year harvest. Is God going to take care? Is, is he sufficient? We're going to be able to trust him to provide, provide for us. It's, it's hard to improve on how this passage foreshadows the Lord Jesus. Right? He was provided as our substitute and mercy is available through him for everyone, for us all. We're all on equal footing before him. That's a truth that's easy to affirm and it's easy to forget. You know, when, you, when you're inclined to forget this, you are inclined to forget this when you, you walk around and you begin to put people in categories. Does that ever happen to you? Go to the mall or you're at the grocery store and, and you see people and you think, oh, there's somebody who's less worthy than I am. Uh, they're, they're less worthy of, of God's, God's, God's grace. Because you see, you have different categories than I do, but you, you see people and you think, oh, that guy's lazy. He doesn't deserve God's grace. He's lazy. That person is overweight. That person, that person is, is, they don't speak English very well. That person smokes. That person has made bad decisions. They're drug addicts. They're just, you know, they're just, they're reaping what they, they sow. Well, that person is, is divorced. They have children out of wedlock. Look what terrible parents they are. Or, huh, that person is so self-righteous, they don't deserve God's grace. Everyone has different categories. Those thoughts run through your mind of why they don't deserve God's grace or why they're not on equal footing with us before him. This is a one-in-seven-year tradition in the law God embedded to say, look, we're all dependent on God's blessings. We're all dependent on God's grace, equally so. Philip Yancey wrote about a young man by the name of Adolphus. Several years ago, Phil Yancey lived in Chicago, and he attended a church, LaSalle Street Church, and there was a young man named Adolphus who had come to church, and Adolphus had some significant uh, mental issues. Probably he, w- he was born with some of them. Then he served in uh, the army in Vietnam. That exacerbated the, the problems that he had. And uh, he lived in this neighborhood and we come to the church. Adolphus uh, never was able to hold a job, keep on a job. He was prone to fits of rage and he had erratic behavior. If he took his meds before he came to church, things went, went fine. But on Sundays that he didn't, he was, he was unpredictable. Some Sundays he would come to church and he'd sit in, in the pews and uh, during the sermon he would listen to his Walkman really loud so that if you were sitting next to him you could hear the music that Adolphus was, was listening to during the service. Sometimes he would um, raise his hands while they were singing and make obscene gestures in the church. Uh, the church had this practice called the prayers of the people. And what would happen is there would be a moment of silence in the church and anybody who wanted could pray and they'd pray for sick relatives or they'd pray for missionaries. And after the person was done praying, the congregation in unison would say, Lord, hear our prayer. 
Well, Adolphus figured out not too long after he'd been there that this was his great opportunity. One Sunday he stood up and he said, God, I thank you for Whitney Houston and her amazing body. There's silence in the church and a few confused voices. Lord, hear our prayer. There are, Adolphus, almost on a weekly basis, gave them reasons in this church to to pray that Adolphus would move. Or he'd find a new congregation. Or something. Instead, actually, Phil Yancey watched how the congregation responded to Adolphus. Uh, There was a doctor and a psychiatrist in the church who kind of adopted him. And after the service, they would pull Adolphus aside if if, if something had happened. And Philip Yancey said, most of those, those conversations were peppered with the word inappropriate. <laughs> inappropriate, inappropriate. The church found out that Adolphus sometimes, uh, he lived five miles from church. Sometimes he didn't have bus fare and people would go pick him up and bring him to church. They invited Adolphus into their houses. Adolphus really wanted to join the praise band that they were starting. Uh, and he had bragged at some point in time about his band that he was in. But then they, they tried him out. He had not one lick of musical talent. So they gave him an electric guitar and told him he could play with the praise band as long as it was not plugged in. So Adolphus stood up there every Sunday, strumming away, out of rhythm, and not making a sound. It's good. He wanted to join the church, so the elders interviewed him and talked to him. And and they gave him provisional membership in the church, provided that over time he showed that he understood Christianity and how Christians should treat one another, especially in church uh, he, could, he could join. Gensey writes, in time, as the church continued to embrace him, um, Adolphus actually calmed down. He, he recognized the church was the only stable place in his life, and he began to trust the people there. He would call them when he would, when he would feel, Phil Yancey says, when he would feel the craziness coming on, he would call somebody in, in church for help. Uh, and eventually, actually, Adolphus got married. And on the third time that he tried to join the church, they welcomed him in, into membership. He, he, he got a job that he, that he kept. The congregation gave him over and over again third and fourth chances. That's what people do who recognize that we are all equally dependent on God's grace. That, that's what people do in those situations. And I wonder who in your life there is who's like Adolphus. The person that you're stewarding your blessings for. Here's how these things come together, right? God bless us, we're stewards of them. What we, how do we steward them? By, by sharing. Who, who's the person that you're welcoming, that you're embracing like the Lord has welcomed you? That ministry is one of the clearest signs that you understand what your possessions are for, what your talents are for, what your position is for. And it's a sign that you're actually ready to talk about what it means to be part of the 99%. That's what we're going to do, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we confess to you that we uh, enjoy using the resources that we have to um, serve and help nice people and people who don't take from us, people who say thank you, people who are aware of the uh, burdens that we're bearing to serve them. We, we are slow to serve people who are 
uh, inconvenient and incapable of giving thanks. And yet we recognize that this is what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We who are ingrates and who even now don't understand the full extent of your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. You have come and you have rescued us, our Savior, from our sin. Father, um, forgive us for trying to solve global problems without thinking first and foremost about our hearts. Thank you for all the blessings that you have given us. And would you, by your grace, bring people across our paths this week that we can serve as a sign of our joy in being served by the Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.